will you look with me at Genesis chapter 22. Genesis, well, first, where are we? We're walking through the book of Genesis, part of uh, a look of redemptive history and going beyond Genesis over the next few weeks. I've been given the gift of Genesis chapter 22. Many would argue it is, in one commentator's word, the most perfectly formed and polished of all the patriarchal stories. It's a story that um, elicits uh, great joy in some and distress and trouble in others. Do we avoid it because it's disturbing? Do we try to explain around it, adding things to the story? What do we do with it? The answer to that question is that God has given us the story in the place that it is for a reason. It's meant to come at the, effectively at the end of the Abraham narrative and conclude what began in Genesis chapter 12, and it does so effectively by repeating the, um, the, the promises of God at, toward the end of, of chapter 22. In fact, I'll, I'll show you, there's some echoes in Genesis chapter 22 that, that, that are just uh, beautiful summaries conclusions, fulfillments of what God's been doing throughout the Genesis story here in, in Genesis 22. Now, I've preached on this before. It was a few years ago. I, I think there was something this time around that, that hit me um, deeper, more profoundly. I, I, I can't put my finger exactly on what it, what it was, whether it was just studying this, not necessarily all the other distractions of of ministry and sermon preparation, but I was also struck in reading a little bit of uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And by the way, I'm not a philosopher expert. I don't present myself as one. Kierkegaard wrote a book called Fear and Trembling that's his uh, best work, best-known work, but also the, the, uh, the, the text that all scholars, when they come to this passage, kind of need to wrestle with because he wrestles with the great difficulty the story presents. And he, he writes it under a pseudonym, and he's, he's talking about this older man, and when he was younger, this story fascinated him. It, and then when he's older, he says when he became older, he read the same story with even greater admiration, for life had divided what had been united in the child's pious simplicity. I think each of us, as we grow older, understand some of what he's trying to express here, and that is that there's a, both a depth to this text and a depth and complexity to life that requires us to go deeper into God's Word, and, and, and we can find the answers to life's biggest questions in, in God's Word, in particular in, in texts like this. This, this is meant also to disrupt. I mean, Genesis 12 through 21 has not been a bed of roses, but things seem to be getting better. Isaac has been born. The child of promise is there, and then immediately it jumps into this troubling calling of Abraham to go and sacrifice this child of promise. 
with that introduction, I'm going to read uh, through verse 19, the, the last part of it. After these things, that is, after the birth of Isaac and the sending away of Ishmael, <coughs> after these things, God tested Abraham. I learned from the first service this is exactly where that little tickle in my throat comes on. So before I get into this, I'm just going to drink water. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That is an offering that everything is consumed by fire. He would be dead. On one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand (coughs) the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But an angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you 
And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God tells us that His Word, this, His Word stands forever. Roger has prayed for me. It's my habit. Let me just pray. Father, would You open our eyes to see wonderful things from this, Your Word, this difficult story. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to just sit for a minute and not a literal minute, but a minute in the, the depth of this story and consider what it, what it means to you, what you hear when you, you read it, what your mind goes to. Is it something that you've wrestled with yourself on the meaning? Why is it here in the Bible? Why would God call somebody to do this? What is God trying to communicate not just to you and me, but to the original hearers of this story. Remember that this story of Abraham is recorded by Moses for the people of God in their wilderness wandering as they're preparing to enter the land. The story wasn't a suspenseful one for them. They knew they were descendants of Isaac. Are you waiting to hear what's going to happen, how things are going to work out. The story was meant to communicate to God's people His provision. The whole name Moriah means God sees, which translates to God will provide, or God provides. Over and over throughout the passage, you see that repeated. The Mount of Moriah, it's even explained explicitly. On the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. This text is meant for the people of God, the people of Israel, the physical descendants of Isaac, and us as those, most of us, engrafted into the household of God, the church of God, which is the Israel of God to communicate to us God's provision. But it doesn't lessen the the disrupting nature of the text, the, the terror or even horror of a command that is directly, diametrically opposed to anything else God commands in Scripture. And even His own commandments, you shall not murder. You shall not act like those of the land around you who offer their children as sacrifices to gods like Moloch. It's meant to jump off the page and be startling to us that we would pay attention to what's going on in this not just beautiful story, but perfectly placed story in the narrative of God's dealing with Abraham, in particular, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac as a whole and even their household and those who are traveling with Abraham, which extends over to the whole household of God. 
I want us to look at three aspects of this story. It's kind of a clunky outline, but you see how it flows out. The story is beautiful in and of itself. God provides, troubling as it is. But let's consider first a little bit more about what the purpose of this story is. And then and let's wrestle with the difficulty inherent in the story. And what's revealed to us in the story that helps us to understand the resolution to the difficulty, and then that'll pave a way that we can behold something of the beauty of this story. And the story that flows throughout Scripture, but in particular of Genesis 12 through 22. Many people have wrestled with the purpose of the story. What are we meant to get out of it? Is it a question that we're supposed to ask? Are, are we loving God more than the thing we love most as many present today? I suspect that most of you come to this text with that understanding of a question of, am I loving anything, namely Isaac in the story, more than God? Other people want to explain this narrative away or soften the edges of it and, and, and say, well, Abraham must have been completely distraught in this whole thing, and we need to understand and really focus on Abraham's distress. They point to little things like him loading the donkey before he cut the wood, and, and he must be out of his mind distressed. We want to find the humanity of this because it really sounds inhumane. And God, when He's talking about the provision, He's not just pointing us to His own provision in this story. There's something, there's something else going on that's meant to be an encouragement to all of us, and the, the hint of it really comes when you look over at Hebrews 11. Interesting, I preached through the Old Testament narrative from Genesis 12 all the way to 50 uh, a few years ago in, in, through the lens of the New Testament. So I was preaching on passages from the New Testament, but following the narrative that leads up to, uh, following the narrative as New Testament authors reference back to the Old Testament. But Genesis 22 doesn't really have that clear of a reference except in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, it, it, Roger mentioned it uh, earlier in recounting Abraham and his example of faith. It's sometimes called the, the hall of heroes of the faith or the hall of, hall of faith. And in going to that this time around, I realized something about Hebrews 11 that I, I had missed before and that Hebrews 11 is a hall of faith and it mentions a lot of names, but it really centers in on the life of Abraham. I mean, it spends an inordinate amount of time on Abraham and his faith. And, of course, you know, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous. And the prophets bear testimony to this. And, and the New Testament bears testimony to this. But Genesis 22 is highlighted in particular in Hebrews 11. Because Genesis 22 presents Abraham as a mature, grown man of faith. 
I had a great epiphany a number of years ago as I was studying in seminary in particular and through the writings of Tim Keller and others. As many of you have, many of you have, that it frees us to read the Old Testament when we realize that the Old Testament is full of fallen, broken people. Many of them are not heroes of the faith. We don't have to make excuses for them and find ways around in order to justify God any more than we have to narrate and find excuses for this passage to understand who God is. But it came on me more and more as I was studying this passage this time around, that Abraham is a man of rock-solid faith in this passage. He doesn't ask God to confirm like He did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what if there are 40 people? What if there are 30? What are the t- he doesn't dialogue in that. He doesn't Doubt God and find end rounds to God's plan. Well, I'll just have a baby with Hagar instead of Sarah. He, he hears God's voice, and it is God's voice. It is unmistakable, and none of us or anyone else in human history has been called by God to go sacrifice their son. Like in this, don't hear that wrong and don't go do that. But Abraham is following God so closely in this that it communicates to us that his example of faith in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11 bears testimony to this is meant for us to see and to follow the example. That's not to say that the the Scriptures are full of exemplars in the faith, and certainly not that Jesus is just one to follow as an example, but, but we are meant to see Abraham as a man of faith. And we're also meant to understand, this is where we're going to go, understand that His faith and faithfulness is also, along with other things in this story, like the sacrifice and the ram, that's the substitutionary sacrifice. They're, they're, they're pointing us to Christ, of course, so that we would understand more of what Christ's sacrifice is. So that's the purpose, provision, God will provide. Abraham's faith. But it doesn't resolve the difficulty. Why would God even think of such a thing? Why would He do it? Some people have suggested through history as an ancient Jewish scribe who added a little Job-like component to this. It was an It was an evil demon like Satan going to God in the story of Job and saying, well, Abraham's faithful. Why don't you do this to Abraham? Trying to smooth off the edges. Why would God do this? What's His purpose? And then a similar question to that is, why would Abraham go through with it? If he knows the commandments of God and he knows the promises of God, and and does he even feel anything? It seems like it's absent of feeling like we said before. There's an interesting little side question of, and he doesn't tell anyone. Why doesn't he tell Sarah? Why does he skirt the question when he talks to Isaac? And the key to this is really the second question, I think, because God doesn't really give us all the answers. The text doesn't give us as to why God would choose to do this. As I said before, it's meant to be startling to jump off the page. 
Surely it prefigures Christ and we see in it an example of substitutionary atonement that's helpful. But I don't think God ultimately pulls back the curtain to tell us, to reveal to us why He chooses to test Abraham in this way. But the text does reveal a lot about what Abraham did and how he did it. And you, you may have read right over it. It's easy to miss. And the questions that a lot of people ask about this text wonder, does Abraham really love his son? Could he really love his son? Or could he love God in the midst of all of this? But over and over, starting at about verse 5, but it really is in verse 2 as well, you see evidence in the text of a deep father-son affection between Abraham and his son, Isaac. In fact, I would say a unity, a, a Christ-like unity with His people, that they are in one another, they're inextricably bound to one another. And that picture also extends over to particularly Abraham's relationship with God. They're, they're just united. There is a union there. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And over and over again, you hear these echoes. Look at verse 5. It starts to sound almost a little bit cold. I and the boy will go over there. You know, stay here with donkey to his servants. I and the boy will go over there. But then look where the language takes us. He laid the wood on, his, on Isaac his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. He took the dangerous elements of it, the most dangerous, the fire and the knife. They went, and it emphasizes both of them together. Notice how these things are repeated. You didn't need to say Isaac and his son. You didn't need to say they went both of them together. Isaac would have been sufficient. Son, they went would have been sufficient, but it's emphasizing that they are together in every aspect. And Isaac said to his father, using the same language that, that, uh, that Jesus uses when he says, Abba, my father, Abba, that familiar language. And, and Abraham says, not just here am I, I'm, I'm here, my son. And Isaac has this pointed question, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. Again, my son. And so they went, again, both of them together. And even when Abraham goes to bind Isaac, and we should call this the binding of Isaac as opposed to the sacrifice of Isaac, when he goes to bind Isaac, I'll tell you why in a minute, he goes to bind Isaac, there's no, there's no wrestling, there's no resisting. It's entirely curious why the son would be so willing to do this, and yet it's here in the text. They are together on this. And while Abraham surely was troubled throughout the whole thing, we can't really say what was going through his mind because the text doesn't tell us. And so... What we do have in the text is that Abraham 
at this point is trusting God completely. In Hebrews 11, it reveals a secret to that trust that Abraham had been through enough of life with God to believe not just that God was going to intervene and stop it, but that even if he did it, God would raise Isaac from the dead because his promise to Abraham specifically was through Isaac, I am going to do all these things. Abraham was at a point of mature faith that he was one with God and he was one with his son. Now, we don't also know really why he didn't tell anyone. But I suspect, and this is dangerous with this passage in particular, I suspect that he didn't know what the answers were to give them when they asked why. He simply again was following in faith the thing that God had called him to do. Crazy as it was. Now, here's where the story takes a little bit of a twist, and this is a little bit different than what most of you have probably heard about it. But with that unity in mind, with that unity in mind, it's easier to see that what Abraham is doing on this mountain isn't sacrificing his son, he's sacrificing himself. And in this, as Roger was talking about earlier, not thinking so individualistically, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the ancient world which was much more collective and which depended on the family farm, the land, being held together, an heir who could manage that farm, being responsible for it, and in Abraham's case, that farm isn't just his land. They don't even have their own land yet. It isn't just the nation of Israel. As Roger said, it's the whole world. <clears throat> Abraham is wrestling with the promise of God. Actually, he's not wrestling. He's acting in faith that the promise of God that through Isaac, the salvation, the goodness of all this land... was going to be provided for, and here he was, taking that away. That whole law of the eldest son getting all the land, it sounds so unfair to us. It wasn't caring for other people, but it was designed to keep the thing together, the, the whole farm together, so that in splitting it up, it didn't become uh, insufficient. It wasn't uh, defensible. It, it, it it needed to be held together, and that was what the promise of Isaac was going to do. And Abraham's whole hope and future was in that son. So when Abraham 
sacrifices, goes to sacrifice Isaac, he's not just sacrificing his son, he's sacrificing his own future and potentially the promises of God. But what he does is show, I, I've, I've been there before, I've seen this before, I know God is going to be faithful with the specifics of his promise. His promises. The whole story here, the beauty of Genesis chapter 22, I encourage you to go read 12 through 22 and see and hear the echoes of the whole, fir these, these 11 chapters or the 10 chapters leading up to the 11th, the echoes that Abraham was called to leave his land and God was going to bless him so that he was going to be a blessing in chapter 12 of the promises that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars of heaven, as the sand that was on the seashore. That though they had such trouble having children through Isaac, his descendants would just multiply and multiply. He increases the echo as he come, comes to the end of this chapter in 15 through 19, in saying that he's, gonna, uh, that he's going to surely bless and surely multiply. And even now he gives promise of military conquest, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's even some interesting echoes of the story from chapter 21, and a lot of people call chapter 21 where Ishmael and Hagar are sent off, and there's a similar scene where an angel of the Lord comes down and calls and rescues Ishmael in a, a similar but very different way that, that, uh, that he, he rescues Isaac, and that's a sermon for another time, but it's just fascinating to see the echoes in the continuity of these chapters. And as Abraham comes off the mountain and he returns to his servants, what's Abraham's statement? He called the place the Lord will provide. And significant in all Hebrew literature when it's repeated, to this day it's called on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Tradition holds that Mount Moriah is the same mountain where Jerusalem is built. The Temple Mount and the sacrifices are continually offered. And then, of course, where Jesus is offered up as a sacrifice as well. In many parallel ways to this. The people looked on, astonished. Jesus' disciples had all abandoned Him, not sure what God was doing. But Jesus went to the cross in much the same way that Abraham had gone to this mountain trusting, trusting in the plan that Jesus had made with God the Father, God the Son, or God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There are differences between this story. It's tough to 
peg, peg Jesus and find the Christ figure in this story? Is it, the, is it Isaac? Is it the ram, the substitutionary atonement? Or is it even Abraham himself? And I, I suggest that Abraham in the faithfulness that he offers in going and trusting God is, is more like what Jesus does in going to the cross than anything else in the story. And Abraham is meant to be held up as one who has lived life and come to the division of life, the complexities of life, and found God faithful. I have to tell you, this, this sermon may have been the, the, my, the, the most enjoyable prep I've ever had, and maybe part of that is that I'm in, entering into, or some would argue, well into middle age. And as I look at what faithfulness is, as I grow older, I need people like Abraham. Because what Jesus did for me, He's a model of faithfulness and faith, but I can't measure up to that. But I also need people in my life, just as every one of us needs people in our lives that we look up to and say, I want to be like that. And we can see in Abraham, a trust in God that we can model our life after. Looking to Jesus as our only hope, our only salvation, the only sufficient sacrifice. It wasn't the ram, it wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Abraham himself. And living into that difficulty in the difficult places that God calls us to, even as a church, battered and bruised oftentimes, Wondering, will God be faithful to His promises? And in this story, God says, I will. I will. I have been. And will continue to be. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, You... Your knowledge and understanding is far beyond anything that we can comprehend. May we never come to this story and try to tame it of its wildness, of its difficulty, of the horror of the idea of a father offering his son as a sacrifice, killing the son. Would you redirect our gaze? to see Your faithfulness in delivering not only Isaac, but Your people. And then ultimately, Jesus, that You gave Your own life, submitting to the will of the Father, the Holy Spirit, in Your own will, that we would find life in You giving Yours. And that You have risen from the dead and rule over us in a caring, compassionate, providential way. We ask in Your name. Amen.